0: Love Talk Radio.
1: very big day. There's a lot of stuff to talk about today. Um, I'm going to lead this show today with a, a Super Tuesday breakdown. So I haven't been doing uh, predictions this election season, um, but what I will do is just tell you what the odds are, okay, what the odds are in the individual um, Super Tuesday states, how Biden's South Carolina victory changed um, the odds, and um, just what to expect. I want to prepare you. I want to give you the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, and everything in between. So uh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Then we're going to get to um, Elizabeth Warren, finished in fifth in South Carolina, and uh, she's destroying whatever remnants of a legacy she had left. It's really one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Um, And um, I got Trump making fun of mini Mike Bloomberg, which is hilarious. Uh, Mike Bloomberg pretending that he's president already by buying time to do an address on the major networks at 8 o'clock yesterday, 8 o'clock at night, prime time. Um, And just just prepare yourself, because today's going to be a busy show, it's going to be a long show, and um, it's going to be an important show. There's a lot to get to, and I hope everybody's prepared for tomorrow. If you're in one of those Super Tuesday states, you better get your butt out to the polls and go vote. I don't care if you have to walk there, run there, bike there, fly there. I don't care if you have to wait on a line for an hour and a half. Goodness gracious me, you better go vote. So anyway, without further ado, let's jump right into it, and we're going to talk about Super Tuesday. So here we go. All right, so I haven't been doing predictions this election season, uh, but we do have Super Tuesday coming up tomorrow. And um, I want to give everybody just a little bit of information so you know what to expect. You know what the best case scenario is, the worst case scenario is, and what everything in between is. So uh, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show you here. These are the odds from 538, and you're going to see uh, before Biden South Carolina victory and then after Biden South Carolina victory, um, and you'll see, roughly speaking, where we stand. So here are the odds before Biden South Carolina victory and what Super Tuesday would have looked like. So in California, Bernie had an 89% chance of victory, 89%. Biden is way back there at 7%. The polls have Bernie up at least 15 points there. Um, So it's looking very likely that there's a a Bernie victory in California. The question is really how big is the margin? Now, um, you know, the bigger the margin, the better. If somehow we can make it so Biden isn't even viable and he's not over 15%, That goes a long way into getting a majority. Now, will that actually happen? Mm, It's looking unlikely that Biden won't be viable, at least in the most recent polls that came out. But um, it's almost certainly a Bernie Sanders victory in California, which on its own is really impressive. And we just want as big a victory as we can to run up the delegate count there. Texas. Texas, they have Bernie Sanders with a 52% chance of victory. Biden with a 35% chance of victory, and Bloomberg with a 10% chance of victory. Now, um, you know, this one's interesting to me because I feel like the models have consistently underrated Bernie in Texas. Um, I don't see how it's possible anybody else wins Texas unless there's a massive voter suppression effort. Now, there very well may be that. But with a pretty big Latino population in Texas and Bernie Sanders absolutely dominating among the Latino population, It looks very likely that not only will Bernie Sanders win Texas, but it'll be a pretty large margin. Um, And then you have now it gets a lot more interesting and tighter. North Carolina, basically a toss up. You have 43% for um, Bernie, 36% for Biden, 19% for Bloomberg. Apparently, he's spending a lot there. Virginia, or yeah, Virginia, 48% for Bernie, 27% for Biden, 22% for Bloomberg. Now, I do have to say, that one, uh, there's a question mark in my opinion. They have him with a, you know, a big lead. These are, these are the pre South Carolina odds. They have Bernie with a pretty big lead there. But Virginia has a pretty sizable wealth population. They have quite a few people there who are well off. And I, I think that they might be a big, they might present a struggle for Bernie to do well in, in Virginia. Then we have Massachusetts. You have Bernie with a 58% chance of victory, Warren with a 25% chance of victory in her home state, and Biden with an 8% chance. So Bernie was looking good there pre-South Carolina. Then you have Minnesota. It's dead tied between Bernie and, um, and Amy Klobuchar. That's her home state, so 47% to 47%. Colorado, Bernie, 83% chance of victory, 7% for Biden. Tennessee. Um, A lot closer because it's, it's, you know, one of the southern states. So you have Bernie 39 percent, Biden 39 percent, Bloomberg 17 percent. Alabama, you have uh, this is one where Biden is a flat out favorite, similar to South Carolina. Biden 61 percent, Bernie 21 percent, Bloomberg 17 percent. Oklahoma, we have again, this is kind of a toss up. And this is one that Bloomberg has made a competitive um, there's not m- much polling that comes out of Oklahoma though, but they have Bernie at 35% and then Biden and Bloomberg at 30% respectively. Um, then you have Arkansas. They have Bernie with a slight lead there, 38% chance. Uh, Biden 25. Bloomberg actually above Biden in Arkansas, 28. And then you have Utah, Maine, and Vermont are all giant uh, Bernie strongholds there. You can see 87% chance in Utah, 67% chance in Maine, and 99% chance in Vermont. That's, of course, Bernie's home state. And American Samoa, 40% chance for Bernie, uh, 27 for Biden, 20 for Bloomberg. So, now, if you look at those numbers and you, you know, count it down and just go based off of, let's say, let's say the odds hold in every one of those states. Let's say the odds hold, for argument's sake. The pre-South Carolina odds had Bernie winning 13 of 15 contests. Okay, that's a dominant victory. That's a giant victory. That's a bye-bye contested convention. I'm going to run away with this thing and get a majority-type victory. Okay, now, temper your excitement because the odds do change post Biden's big South Carolina win. So here are the odds after Biden's South Carolina win. California, believe it or not, it's gotten better for Bernie because he's been campaigning there like crazy, and I think some early numbers have been released and Bernie's crushing. So it's a ninety one percent chance Bernie wins California. Um and the real question is how big is the margin gonna be? And will Biden be viable? And will Warren be viable? Will Warren get above that fifteen percent threshold? Um so California ninety one percent for Bernie, amazing. They have Texas now as a total toss-up, according to 538. 49% chance for Bernie, 48% chance for Biden. Um, now, I will say again, because of the demographics of Texas, because of how hard Bernie's been campaigning in Texas, because Biden's been MIA in Texas, I'll go out on a limb here and say, no, I think Bernie's going to win Texas, okay? But they have it as a toss-up now, post-South Carolina. Then you have North Carolina. All of a sudden, boom, Biden is now a big favorite in North Carolina in part because the demographics of North Carolina are somewhat similar to South Carolina, and Biden crushed in South Carolina. So now Biden has a 77% chance of winning North Carolina, Bernie just an 18% chance. By the way, the polls are much closer than that, but these are the odds according to 538. Um, Virginia, okay, Virginia, now we have Bernie 41%, Biden 48%. Now Biden's the favorite in Virginia. Um, now, again, I'm concerned about Virginia just because the, um, there's a sizable wealthy population there. So if Bernie can win Virginia, that bodes well for him you know, in general. For, for, it means he had, probably had a pretty good night overall. Um, now, Massachusetts, still Bernie a favorite, six, uh, 63% chance to Warren's 30% chance. Minnesota, Bernie drops a little bit, and Klobuchar becomes a, a slight favorite. Uh, Bernie, 40% chance. Klobuchar, 56% chance. Uh, In Colorado, Bernie's still a giant favorite, 85% chance for Bernie. In Tennessee, you have now now Biden's a favorite because, again, Southern state favors Biden because older black voters like Biden. 61% chance for Biden, 26% chance for Bernie. Alaska, now 79% for Biden, 11% for Bernie. I'm not sure how or why those polls or those odds have now shifted so massively. Oklahoma. It was like a toss-up before. Now they have Biden, 45% chance, Bloomberg, 27 Bernie, even below Bloomberg in Oklahoma at 25%. Um, Arkansas, 39% chance for Biden, leads there. 30% for Bernie, 24% for Bloomberg. Utah, now, again, you go through these three states, big, uh, you know, Bernie's a big favorite in all these states, 87% in Utah for Bernie, 67% in Maine, 99% chance in Vermont. And then you can see um, American Samoa is a little bit more of a toss-up now. Bernie, 35, Bloomberg, 20, Biden, 32. So, okay, if you now if you take the odds and just say, hey, the favorite in the post-South Carolina uh, odds wins every one of those things, so the probability holds up, okay? In that situation, Bernie would win 8 of 15, 8 of 15. So just... To go back, rewind a second. Thirteen of fifteen pre-South Carolina. Now, after Biden's big win in South Carolina, they say eight of fifteen for Bernie. Okay. Now, so either way, Bernie's gonna Bernie's gonna have the delegate lead. Okay. It, almost no matter what happens, Bernie has the delegate lead coming out of Super Tuesday. The question is, is he gonna have? Is he gonna be on pace? for a a plurality, or is he going to be on pace for a majority? If he's on pace for a plurality, that means we're probably going to have a contested convention and all of us need to get our butts to Milwaukee. That's what that means. If he's on pace for a majority, we could breathe easy a little bit and think, okay, he could get this on the first ballot and they can't even contest the convention. So we will have a, a much better idea of what what the race will look like after tomorrow, either tomorrow night or Wednesday morning. Um, So my guess is, my guess is Bernie's going to be on pace for a strong plurality, which means if he's on pace for a strong plurality, then after Super Tuesday, it's still going to kind of be a toss up between if he can have a majority or is he going to have just a plurality um, by the time the race is over. Um, things to look for, things to look for on Super Tuesday. He's got wiggle room. So what that means is there's not like one scenario that's awesome for Bernie. There's a couple scenarios that could play out. So let's say Bernie wins Texas, Bernie wins California, but Biden's viable in California, Biden's viable in Texas, and maybe Warren is viable in California. And that takes away from him just like, taking all the delegates home in that scenario you know we won't be as happy because we want him to take like all the delegates from those delegate rich states um but he can make up for it in other ways so maybe his margin isn't that big in texas isn't that big in california okay but if he picks off virginia in that scenario then it kind of wipes out the concern about how big the margin is in texas and california so there's no, there's no real one scenario that we're looking for. Um, if you ask me what the most likely scenario is, he'll be on pace for a strong plurality. And I think maybe he'll win like 10 of 15 of the contests. And I think um, the other candidates will not really be within striking distance, but they'll still have a chance to stop a majority for Bernie. So that's what I think will happen. That's how I think it's going to unfold. Um, But no matter what, and this is an important point, and I I, I like to make this because it'll calm a lot of you people down if you're nervous. There is no scenario in which it's a devastating day for Bernie, just so you understand. Even under a worst-case scenario where he wins 8 of 15 of the contests, he still won most of the contests. He's still going to come out of there growing his delegate lead, uh, growing his popular vote lead. That's a virtual guarantee. So there's no scenario in which it's devastating for Bernie. But the worst-case scenario is he wins like 8 of 15, and he's not even on pace for a strong plurality. He's just on pace for a standard plurality of 30 or 35 percent or whatever it may be. And um, and then you're lo- it looks like a contested convention is very likely in that scenario. So, again, I think he'll probably win about 10 of the 15 contests. Um, he'll... Get a pretty sizable delegate lead, but he still is not going to necessarily be on pace for a majority. So that means from here on out, we're going to have to work really hard. And you know, listen, this is I'm I'm in New York. We vote in April, and for the first time in my lifetime, my vote might actually really matter a lot. Because <laughs> in 2016, in 2016, I guess it, there was still a chance Bernie could win, but he was already pretty far behind Hillary by the time he came in here. And um, it felt like the vote mattered, but it might matter a hell of a lot more this time, because it might actually be like, okay, is he going to get a strong plurality or a majority? It might actually be in that kind of a scenario where every single vote is going to matter massively. So just, uh, just prepare yourselves. I tried to, to give you all of the possible scenarios here, how it could unfold. Um, really the best case scenario for Bernie So I've told you guys what the worst-case scenario is. i told you guys numerically what the best-case scenario is. A night where Bernie cleans up and basically ends the race, he would win Minnesota. Klobuchar would lose it. He'd win Massachusetts. Um, Elizabeth Warren would lose it. He would also win Virginia, maybe even pick off North Carolina, and also have giant victories in California and Texas. That would be the dream scenario. Wrap it up, skis. It's over. And guys, just so you know, even with Biden's big South Carolina win, that's possible that that happens. And the reason I say that is the Biden win in South Carolina could genuinely be just smoke and mirrors because there's one demographic Biden does well with, older black voters, and that's who makes up the South Carolina electorate. So it's very possible that as soon as you get outside of the South, everywhere is just he's done. He's totally gone. And, you know, we told you that report from the New York Times, he hasn't been campaigning. He hasn't been campaigning in any of the Super Tuesday states. He has one office in California. His ground game is abysmal. There's no enthusiasm on the ground for him. He's kind of like a default option for a lot of people. So, you know, if that happens, oh, my God, we're popping champagne on Tuesday night. If that happens, I'm going to just, I'm going to lose it. So we'll talk about it obviously after the fact, but if you're voting in one of these Super Tuesday states, go do the thing right now, man. Well, you can't do it now, but do it Tuesday ASAP. Um, and if you can early vote in some of those states, you could do that as well. And by the way, the results for I believe Texas and California will not be fully in on Tuesday night because they do have ballots that um, they do have ballots beforehand that come in. They have early voting, and sometimes the ballots come in like on the day. And it takes like a couple more days to count it, maybe even a week to count the rest of them. So we'll know who wins those states, but it's not we're not going to know exactly the margin that you know, Bernie would win by. So anyway, there's your breakdown. And I look forward to Super Tuesday, although I am nervous, and I'm sure many of you are as well. Okay. Next, next. Now we're going to go after Elizabeth Warren because she keeps going after Bernie. So Elizabeth Warren finished in an abysmal fifth place in the South Carolina primary. And um, in her speech after, she fired shots at Bernie.
2: Demands more than a senator who has good ideas. His 30-year track record shows he consistently calls for things that fail to get done and consistently opposing
0: things that, nevertheless,
1: he fails to stop. Probably the worst criticism I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so you're blaming Bernie because the rest of the Senate and the House are a swamp. That's not his fault. That's their fault. Like, oh, he's got all these great ideas, but they never get passed. Okay, so why don't you blame the people who are not in favor of them and who are blocking them? She's reaching so hard, man. She's reaching so hard. And by the way, the idea he's never gotten anything done isn't even true. They have a nickname for Bernie Sanders. It's the Amendment King. You want to know why? Because he always gets amendments, very positive amendments slipped into pieces of legislation that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have positive aspects to it. So, you know, that's pretty important. It's also pretty important you want to go talk to the workers at Disney and ask how they like Bernie Sanders because it's because of him that they have a $15 minimum wage. You want to go talk to some of the Amazon workers and see how they like Bernie Sanders because it's because of him and Ro Khanna that they have a $15 minimum wage. You want to go talk to them? Um, Or what about Bernie Sanders and uh, Mike Lee of Utah getting together, Ro Khanna in the house, and among others, getting together to stop the U.S. support of the genocide in Yemen. And then Trump vetoed it. According to Elizabeth Warren's logic, oh, well, that's Bernie's fault. So he's being uh, penalized for being on the right side of everything. Because, oh, you didn't control all of Washington somehow. Elizabeth, please, I mean, honestly, you're embarrassing yourself. I really hate to see this. It's become, like, super pathetic. So, now, if you see that, and you think, well, it can't become any more pathetic than that. Oh, Buckle up. In, uh, new, in memo, Elizabeth Warren, campaign manager, basically admits that Warren's candidacy is now a convention effort. Quote, no candidate will likely have a path to the majority of delegates. Milwaukee is the final play. Ultimately prevail at the national convention. Okay, that's not even necessarily true yet. There's still a decent chance. It's almost even money that Bernie Sanders does get a majority going into the convention. So, first of all, it's not even true when you say, oh, likely no candidate will have a pass to the majority delegates." Already wrong. But, okay, let's assume that's correct. Look at this. Milwaukee is the final play and will ultimately prevail at the national convention. She's admitting, I'm going to try to overturn the will of the voters. She's admitting it. So he's like, yeah, I, okay, I, I see what the voters want, noted, now we're going to go ahead and nullify that, and I'm going to try to do a backroom, smoke-filled backroom deal to come out the beneficiary and come out the nominee. So you're admitting you don't believe in democracy. That's what you're doing. You're admitting you don't care about the will of the voters. You're admitting that your own narcissism and your ego overrides that. You have no principled belief in democracy. I never want to hear ever again from Elizabeth Warren or anybody else who has this position that they're concerned about the Russians interfering with democracy. Oh, you're interfering with democracy. You're saying I don't care who the majority of voters pick. I want to go in a smoke-filled back room and come out uh, the winner. By the way, Elizabeth Warren, they're never going to make you the nominee. even Okay, even in her ideal scenario. Let's grant her this all for a second. She's behind the scenes, and she's like, yes, I'm the midpoint between Bernie Sanders and the establishment. Therefore, I'm uniquely suited to be correct and to be the nominee, and you guys should all pick me. And then all the massively corrupt DNC officials are like, yes, your logic chokehold has got me. I will now support you, Elizabeth Warren, even though you came in like fourth and fifth in every single contest and had a pathetic showing. So they pick her, and then what happens? What do you think happens from there? You get to override the will of the voters, Elizabeth Warren. And then in the general election, everybody somehow just magically starts liking you. And then you go on to ride in on your white horse and destroy Donald Trump in the general election and become the first female president of the United States. That's not going to happen. If there is a brokered convention, hear me now, quote me later. Hear me now, quote me later. If there is a brokered convention, Donald Trump wins. Now, slight asterisk there. It's possible if there's a brokered convention and Bernie comes out the nominee because he has the most votes. In that scenario, it's possible that Trump doesn't win. But even that, you're rolling the dice. Really, whoever gets the most votes should become the nominee. End of conversation. No brokered convention. But even in your dream scenario, Elizabeth Warren, which is not going to happen, it's not going to happen. I'm being kind by even entertaining the idea that they would consider you. But let's say it's her dream scenario. She gets picked. She comes out. Yes, I will unite the whole country. Yes. You will get obliterated. Donald Trump will landslide you. You want to know why? The base isn't going to be very happy to come out and vote when you just said to them, your vote doesn't matter. By the way, total logical contradiction, too. I mean, stop and think about how arrogant this is. This is so arrogant, we need a new word for it. Elizabeth Warren wants to tell you, okay, 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 okay. Listen, I'm going to override your votes. In the primary, I'm going to override it. But then in the general, I'm going to come begging to you and say, please, I need your vote. Your vote is so important. You just told me my vote didn't matter. You just told me to go screw myself. You just told the will of the people
2: that you're irrelevant and I'm going to come out on top anyway. And then you're going to turn around in the general and say, please, I need your vote. Your vote is so important. Your vote is what makes democracy function. Five minutes ago you didn't think that. Five minutes ago you said it doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm going to override the will of the voters.
1: It's so arrogant we really do need a new word for it. Elizabeth Warren, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And by the way, I've been way too kind to her to this point saying that uh, let's grant her that it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. Even in the best case scenario, she would lose to Trump. But in the most likely scenario, here's how this conversation unfolds. Oh, there's a brokered convention behind the scenes. Elizabeth Warren and her team go up to the the superdelegates, and they're like, okay, guys, listen, I'm the one that makes the most sense because I'm halfway in between Bernie and the establishment, and that's what you guys want, a slightly safer choice. That's me. That's me. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to go, no. Next person we're considering. Honestly, I'm not kidding about this. Mike Bloomberg has a better chance of getting it at a brokered convention than Elizabeth Warren does. You want to know why? because she sold out for nothing. Elizabeth Warren, they did not forget the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that you did. You think the donors are okay with that? You think the lobbyists are okay with that? You think the special interests are okay with that? They didn't forget that you wanted to crack down on Wall Street for a long time, and you mean it. They, don't, they didn't forget that you want to raise taxes on the rich. They didn't forget any of that. So the, like, they would take one look at you, and they would put you in the same category as Bernie, they would say, no, 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 you're just, no, you're in, you're in some ways on the left, so we're not going to have you at all. Mike Bloomberg has a better chance. Joe Biden has a better chance. Mayor Pete has a better chance. It, it's unbelievable that she has, she sold out for nothing. The character arc on Elizabeth Warren's story is the most depressing I've ever seen. Somebody who seemingly cares about the issues and is a crusader for the right thing and pushed Obama to the left and then slowly but surely kind of stabbed her friend in the back in 2016 when this person who nominally agrees with her on a lot more issues, would you look at that? She didn't endorse Bernie Sanders. Wow, funny how that works. She kind of sat back and let Hillary Clinton steal the election and then endorse Hillary Clinton in the general. And then fast forward, now you want to run and you're trying to block your friend from getting the nomination, even though he's the one who created the movement. And then you go on to back off of Medicare for All, accuse Bernie Sanders, the most progressive senator in the country, of being a secret sexist, now your campaign is literally just a stop-Bernie effort where you're saying, even if he gets uh, the plurality, I'm going to try to steal it for myself. You sold out for nothing. For nothing. You're not even going to get anything out of it. You ruined whatever remnants of a legacy you had left for Dickie McGee's acts. For nothing. I don't know how she sleeps at night. I'm serious. I don't know how she looks herself in the mirror and says, yeah, oh, great job, keep it going. The nerve to send out that email, the email of like, okay, our play is at the convention in Milwaukee. We're we're going to prevail there. Want to donate $5 to my campaign? The nerve. The nerve. So here's what I say, man. You know, if you live in Massachusetts, she's already telling you, oh, your vote is not going to matter in the primary. I don't care about it because I'm going to try to steal it anyway. So if you live in Massachusetts, why would you vote for her? She doesn't believe that votes should determine who the winner is. So she can't have that contradiction of asking you for your vote and then turning around and saying, I don't care who the votes go to. It doesn't matter to me. So if you're in Massachusetts and you're a Warren supporter, listen, we welcome you into the Bernie camp with open arms. And with Bernie, notice he hasn't attacked anybody. He hasn't. Everything has been factual. Everything, like Mayor Pete, he has billionaire donors. Sure, it's a little bit of an attack, but it's also factually accurate. He never goes out of his way to say things that are untrue or gratuitous. So if you support Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a, a green new deal and legalizing marijuana and regulating Wall Street and raising taxes on the rich if you want to support an actual left agenda the Bernie camp welcomes you with open arms and we hope that you'll consider you know voting for him because Elizabeth Warren has no chance and she's gotten desperate to the point where she wants to steal the election and I think there should be consequences for that I don't know how anybody in their right mind votes for her when she's saying I don't care about democracy I don't care about principles. Uh, Now I'm in it for the narcissism and the self-aggrandizement. And I don't care what I have to do, what evil tactics I have to do to get to that point. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm honestly furious about this. The nerve to say, I want to try to steal it at the convention, and then I'm going to come out in the general and ask you for your vote. Five minutes ago, I said your vote literally doesn't matter. I don't care who has the most votes. I don't care. I'm going to try to steal it. And then you're going to ask us for our vote. What happened? You just said it doesn't matter. Now it matters. Mm, We're going to go ahead and go with. uh, No, it doesn't matter, because that's what you told us originally. So you would get she would get obliterated against Trump in a general election. Really is a shame what happened to Elizabeth Warren. It really is. And after all this, I hope she loses her home state, because if anybody's earned it, it's her. All right, next.
2: Next, next.
1: All right, here we go. Ready? The MSNBC narrative police are crafting their ludicrous theories after the South Carolina primary. And um, Maddow unsurprisingly, really jumped the shark with this one.
3: If anybody knows anything about winning the Democratic nomination and about what it takes for a Democratic nominee to win a general election, it is black voters. And if Senator Sanders continues to underperform systematically with black voters, and if we see him get shellacked, not just beaten, but shellacked tonight in South Carolina because of his performance with black voters, that's a existential question about that nomination, undoubtedly.
1: Bernie Sanders is leading nationally with black voters. There's no accountability. There's no accountability on corporate media, none. You see what they're doing here? They're going, oh, Bernie Sanders lost in um, South Carolina because of black voters. Therefore, black voters don't like him. What they're not telling you is very simple. The demographics of South Carolina and the voting population is very, very, very old. That's why he lost, because older voters in general do not like Bernie Sanders. Black, white, whatever. Generally speaking, he underperforms with that one demographic in the country. Well, what do they do? They go, oh, it's it's black people, full stop. Actually, no, even the polls in South Carolina show Bernie won among young black voters. So he won among young black voters, came in second with all black voters in South Carolina, and nationally he's leading with black voters. And what does Matt Al say? Oh, it's a terrible existential threat. If he per- underperforms with black voters, it, 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 there's no way that he can, he can win and be our nominee. There's no way. What do you do in a situation where... What they're pushing is rank propaganda, and it doesn't line up with reality at all. What do you do? And again, there's no accountability. They're not going to say anything to her. They're not going to do anything to her. They're not going to, you know, say, hey, issue a correction. They're not going to do that. And by the way, did, did they ever say any of this? Now, Mayor Pete just dropped out, but did, did any of them go on to say, wow, Mayor Pete, his campaign really imploded. Wow, Amy Klobuchar, who's been arguing, I'm the reasonable choice, I'm the centrist moderate she's doing terribly. Wow, Elizabeth Warren, she should probably drop out. She's performing abysmally. They didn't say any of that about any of the other candidates. They didn't say any of that about, remember Joe Biden in the first three states? He got crushed in every single state, and never did they say, wow, this is terrible. He's underperforming with every demographic. No. But Bernie (laughs) wins young black voters, comes in second with black voters' In total, in South Carolina, leads black voters nationally, and they're like, "Ah, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> Campaign over. What's he doing? This is an existential threat. They will never be fair." And by the way, as somebody said on Twitter the other day, I wish I could give credit to this, but they said, "Tonight might be the first contest of 2020 where the media doesn't say the real winner is the person who came in second, because that's what they've been doing. Like, how many times they said it after um, after Nevada?" Who was? Was it Bi- I think it was Biden who came in second. They're like the real winner tonight is Joe Biden. So Bernie gets a second place finish, and it's oh Biden obviously won. Remember the point that they made where they said, oh if you add up all the other candidates versus Bernie in Nevada, the other candidates win. So a non-moderate alter- or a moderate alternative, a non-progressive alternative is what the voters really want. Okay, well if we do that same thing in South Carolina, then a non-Biden alternative is what people really want oh, weird, you don't like it when we play that game in South Carolina, but you do like it elsewhere whenever it disadvantages Bernie. You're all such hacks. You're all such hacks. I can't deal with it. It drives me crazy. Uh, You know, it pains me that I have this political talk show, and I have to do segments like this, like rebutting third-grade arguments.
2: Oh, God, it's
1: just, it's so frustrating. Anyway, tomorrow's Super Tuesday. We have the ability to put all these people in their place. Let's do exactly that. All right, now let's have some fun with Donald Trump. President Trump gave a speech at CPAC. That's the Conservative Political Action Conference, I think it stands for. And, um, man, these things are coming faster and faster now. Like, it was, I feel like the last CPAC speech was, like, three months ago, but it was a year ago. Um, anyway, so he gave this speech, and in it, he absolutely lit up. Mike Bloomberg and Elizabeth Warren.
0: We got mini Mike, but I think he's out of it. I would like to spend $700 million and end up with nothing. Mini Mike. I know him well. I knew that was going to happen. That was probably the worst debate performance in the history of presidential debates. The we agree? has there ever been anything like that. Right. He's going to keep spending the money. I think this weekend he's going to. I hear his ad stop on Tuesday. He's going for Tuesday. He's going to spend a lot of money. It just shows you that you can't buy an election. I mean, it just. There's a point at which people say, you got to bring the goods a little bit, too. you got to bring the goods. Boy, did Pocahontas destroy him, I'll tell you. And look what I did to her. She choked. You know, she went out and got a test because I was killing her with a Pocahontas. <laughs> Remember, I said, I have more Indian blood in me than she does, and I have none. Right? <laughs> I, said, I said <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have some, but I have none. Oh, it's so funny. And she was getting hit with that name, Pocahontas. That was one of the good ones. And they said, we want you to apologize for that name. And I did. I apologized. Nobody ever heard me apologize before. I apologized. To the real Pocahontas, I apologize. <laughs> oh,
2: you're a bad man, Trump.
0: But she went out and she said, oh, this guy's killing me. Remember, she was dropping like a rock. But I learned something. Never do it too early. A year and a half before the election, I said, what am I doing? I should have said, it, but that's all right. She had those burning embers and then she started, but ultimately she failed. She's got some. But uh, she was really mean to Minnie Mike, I'll tell you, the way she treated him. He didn't know what hit him. He's going, oh, get me off of this stage. Get me off! Get me off of this stage.
1: There's no way. Anybody but Bernie has a chance against Trump.
0: No way!
1: Oh, that was, that was good material, man. That was genuinely funny. I laughed at multiple times throughout that. I, you know, it is scary to me that anybody could really think that Biden or Bloomberg or any of them are more electable. Imagine thinking Klobuchar or Pete would stand up well to that. See, what they don't get, which Trump gets, is the new political era that we're in. He helped usher in this new political era. It's no longer the era of um, blowing smoke up your ass. Because that was the political strategy for the longest time. Ronald Reagan with, It's morning in America. And he all, Oh, America's so wonderful and beautiful and perfect and amazing. It's
2: morning in America, yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, Bill Clinton followed that same candidate model of talk about how great this country is and you know tell everybody about our bright and flowery future by using by using these you know unnecessary words that are way too long and it was the era of professionalism you have to be buttoned down you have to talk like this but don't point at them with your finger you have to just do it that way because that's too aggressive and that's not too aggressive And then what Trump did is he came in and he basically said, you know, all these rules that you guys are playing by, it turns out they're not actually rules. And all it took was somebody to come in and say, I'm going to do the exact opposite. And then everybody went, oh, oh, (laughs) well, that's interesting. And he ended up winning. And so he, you know, it's the populist era, not just populist in terms of policies. And it is populist in terms of policies because that's what people want. But rugged and populist in terms of delivery. So, you know, he has a lot more in common with somebody doing a stand-up routine right there than he does with the president. But that's what's landing. That's what's landing. And honestly, I think a lot of this might have to do with the fact that it's the age of the Internet, too. And the age of the Internet, I mean, shitposting is an art. People on the left, people on the right, you know, people go in. And if you try saying something stupid on Twitter and then see how you get out of it, <laughs> you won't be unscathed, I guarantee you. But that's the era that we're in. So, he's like the first troll in chief or shit poster in chief. And he's just up there riffing, making fun of these people. And by the way, like I talked to somebody about this recently, and they were like, it's not, I don't like that he does it because he's bullying, and bullying is bad. It doesn't matter who you're bullying. And like, my response to that is, and I think many people believe this subconsciously, is no, Mike Bloomberg is a billionaire oligarch who's corrupt, and he's trying to buy a country, and he's successfully buying a political party. If there's anybody who deserves a little bit of bullying, it's that guy. So one of the things that's happened with Trump is a lot people don't even like Trump. It's they hate the same people that he hates. You see what I'm saying? So it's almost like a weird alliance where it's like, I don't like this guy. In fact, I kind of dislike this guy. But the fact that he's going after these you know, target-rich environments of people who take themselves too seriously and are so smug and are massively corrupt... I can't help but like it. And that's exactly what I think here when I see this. It's funny. His delivery is funny. The way he's going after them. And by the way, the only card that these people have, and it drives me crazy, oh my God, as it drives me crazy, is, stay with me, the offended card. (laughs) Because what do they do? They go, like, take the thing he said about Elizabeth Warren. Oh, Pocahontas is racist. Stop saying it. And Trump's response to that is, yeah, no, and I'm going to keep saying it. (laughs) (laughs) And then it ends up working when he does it on this front, particularly because there's a freaking Disney movie called Pocahontas. It's like the case that you're trying to make is too far in Wokesville to land with the general population. So when he's just like, no, it's not racist, and I'm going to keep saying it, people are like, oh, okay. All right, well, he's leading the charge on it. What are you going to do? So... I mean, it doesn't work when all you have is the policing discourse card. Like, instead of responding to what Trump says, they try to draw clean lines around the stuff he's allowed to say. And then if he steps outside of that stuff, they wag their finger and they go, Sir, how
0: dare you? How could you? You're not allowed to say that.
1: And then the fact that people respond like that make people like what Trump's saying even more. Because if there's one thing they're fed up with, it is true. People are sick of political correctness. They just want to, okay, just give me room to fucking joke around and breathe and say whatever the hell I want without you jumping down my throat and calling me a bigot every four seconds. So in a weird way, the reaction to a lot of this Trump stuff only emboldens this Trump stuff. Because people, you know, they, they're like, uh, relax a little bit. Like, he's just messing around. So, you know, it's weird because... The institutional response from the establishment media and from the corporate candidates always fails. Still, we're years into the Trump administration. They still don't get it. They still don't know how to fight him. The only one who does is Bernie. Because what does Bernie do? He doesn't get sucked into the Trump game. What Bernie does is he looks at it like he's a disappointed father and Trump's his idiot son. And he's like, I don't know what you're doing and I don't really care. But what I'm going to do is get people health care and I'm going to get people a living wage. And he changes the conversation. He shifts the paradigm. He goes and focuses on the things that you should focus on if you are a president and you really want to improve lives. And when you do that, all of a sudden, he's off his, his uh, comfortable footing. He's off the grounds of the debate being on his terms. And that's how you beat him. None of the candidates get that except, except Bernie. He's the only one who gets it. He wouldn't, he'd look at Trump's antics and be like, okay, anyway, back to a living wage. <laughs> like That's what he does and that would land cuz people people would be reminded, oh, okay, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a race for president. Person who's going to make a lot of very important decisions that affect all of us. And what Trump is doing is hilarious from a comedic perspective. But, you know, I do I have kids and I want my kids to have a bright future and this guy's the only one who's actually looking out for it. I'm going to vote for him. So, Trump would obliterate Elizabeth Warren. Trump would obliterate Michael Bloomberg. Trump would obliterate Biden. They already released an ad showing his mental decline. They're not going to, you know, the idea, and a lot of Democrats do this, so like, oh, certain things are out of bounds. They're not going to go after Biden on these things. Trump's like, <laughs> I'm going to go after him on exactly those things. And so no holds are barred in the general. So I don't know why you're pulling your punches in the primary. And he will exploit every single weakness, and he's already doing it with Biden. Bernie is the only one with a chance. Bernie is the only one that's electable. All right, next. So this story is completely insane, but um, welcome to 2020. This is right in line with what we'd expect. Mike Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg's campaign says it's buying three minutes of NBC and CBS airtime around 830 Eastern time tomorrow to give a brief address on the coronavirus. Now, this uh, tweet, I believe, was from two days ago. So he did the address last night. I saw it on Twitter and um it's the saddest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's low-energy Mike, uh, even though I know his nickname is Mini Mike. But he was low-energy in this. He looked like a deer in headlights. He's reading the, you know, the cue cards. He's like, and I think that what we should do is listen to the scientists and make sure that we ha- have funded the health and human services. And I mean, he's right about that stuff, but what are you doing, Mike? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's pretending that he's already president. I mean, it's come on, man. Like, who do you think this is fooling? Nobody's going to watch that and be like, oh, Mike Bloomberg looks very presidential. I guess I'll go vote for him. Nobody is going to do that. But that's what he's trying to do. Guys, I, I know this It might be hard to believe, but this is his pre-Super Tuesday Hail Mary pass. This is it. It shows how out of touch a billionaire oligarch is, that he thinks like, hmm, I need to do something to make up the ground in Super Tuesday, so how could I do that? I have an idea. Let me just buy three minutes of airtime in primetime on the major networks to pretend that I'm already president. And I hope that people will watch it and go, oh, wow, Michael Bloomberg looks very
2: serious. He looks presidential. I'll go vote for him now.
1: That didn't happen, you sad, sad little man. By the way... What was the fact? I forget. I'm forgetting the exact number, but I believe he spent about $700 million already on the election. I'm going to get to a story. Tom Steyer, Sawyer, dropped out. We're going to get to a story on him. I'll tell you how much money he spent on the election and what the results were. But Mike Bloomberg is spent over half a billion, over half a billion dollars. And was he going to have to show for it? Dickie McGee's acts? Nothing. Maybe a sprinkle. I'll give you a little delegate here or there. A little sprinkly delegate right here or there. A little delegate for you. Here, Mike. Give you a little sprinkler delegate. But it's going to be nothing. <laughs> it's not going to work. They did exit polls in South Carolina. You know what his approval rating was? Guys, this is Democratic primary. Democratic primary. His approval rating was 25%. <laughs> $700 million and getting a 25% approval rating in a Democratic primary.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh.
1: <laughs> what are you doing, man? What are you doing? See, Mike Bloomberg took the exact wrong lesson from Trump's victory. What lesson did Mike Bloomberg take? Oh, billionaires can do it. Billionaires can do it. They can win. See, Trump did it. So, I can do it. But it's the exact wrong lesson. Why? Because Donald Trump ran in the populist lane. He ran the lane of everything's all messed up and everything's broken and I hate the system and I'm going to fix the system and we need to make sure we look out for working people. And what's Mike Bloomberg doing the opposite? Running in the elitist lane. Um, Yes, I have billions of dollars and I made that because I'm a super genius. And I think we need effective managers of the population. And I would be an effective manager. And I would make sure people fall in line. That's a totally different message. The lesson of Trump's victory is not billionaires can do it. It's populist politics work. But he took, he took the message, billionaires can do it. And now he's like, here I am. Nobody cares. Bro. <laughs> Nobody cares. Oh, my God. I, listen, this is like next level sad. I got an idea. I'll just, buy, I'll just give an address to the nation like I'm already the president. People, I think, are going to despise that, that like you're acting like you're already in the White House. Everything with him is like a cheap shortcut. You know what I'm saying? Like, everything has been like that. Oh, I need endorsements? Just buy him. Oh, I need support? Just buy it. <laughs> oh, I need to get on the debate stage? Just buy it. Just give the DNC $300,000, Democratic Grassroots Victory Fund $800,000. Give it to him and I'll get on this debate stage. No, look at that. It's exactly what happened. That's how I got on the debate stage. His whole approach is like, I'll just cheapen everything, show that these institutions are hollow and corrupt, and I'll just buy my way through, and people will love it. No, everybody hates it, and they see right through you.
2: Okay. Now uh,
1: we are going to go to Tom Steyer Steyer. So Tom Steyer Steyer Sawyer uh, has officially dropped out of the presidential race. That's interesting. So um, he spent about $395 on TV commercials for every single vote he received in South Carolina. Um, he spent $23.6 million out of a total of $36 million spent by all the candidates on TV in South Carolina. So he was basically like his strategy, I'm going to forget Iowa, forget New Hampshire, forget Nevada. I'm going right to South Carolina. And as somebody said on Twitter, he's basically running to be king of South Carolina. Like that was his, he thought, oh, this will springboard board me forward. I'll put all of my resources into here. Actually, similar to a Biden strategy, um, except with Biden, he actually won and won by a sizable margin. Tom Steyer, Steyer, Sire. Sire, Sire Sawyer, got um, 11% of the vote, finished about 10 percentage points behind Bernie, and finished way behind, um, you know, Biden finished with like 48, 49% of the vote. All these resources, all this money, and he has Dickie McGee's axe to show for it. And it's very sad. So um, let me show you Tom Steyer, Steyer, Sawyer, Steyer, his uh, most memorable moment on the campaign trail and it actually came the day before the south carolina election much did they pay you juvenile <laughs> that upsets me man come on juvenile you're supposed to be a Bernie guy all the way oh man that upsets me but I mean they probably gave him like a, a hundred grand for one performance so he was like where do I sign <laughs> so anyway that was his most memorable moment um you know I would I would ask a guy like Tom or Steyer, Steyer Sawyer Like, don't you feel cheap that you have to buy everything around you? Like, doesn't that make you feel terrible? That none of of it is actual enthusiasm for you? None of it is people actually like you? All of it is, like, just fake? Doesn't that bother you? I mean, apparently it doesn't, and apparently it doesn't with most of these billionaires. But that's hard for me to fathom. Because it's, like, sheer entitlement. Like, you think, what, if you just throw some cash cash around, everybody will be like, oh, yeah, totally, you're the best now. It just doesn't work like that, especially running for president. Running for president... I mean, you really people have to actually like you. You have to tap into something, and you just didn't. So how many delegates did he get um, when all said and done, spending so much money, wasting so many resources on South Carolina? How many delegates did he get? Zero. He was able to buy himself double digits, but he didn't even hit the 15% viability threshold. So thankfully, though, that's a good sign. It's a good sign uh, about... Money does massively impact politics, but there are limits. There are limits. And like Trump said in the CPAC speech, to some extent you've got to bring the goods. You can't just, like, you could try to buy your way the entire way there, but you're going to hit a wall, and at some point it's on you to get over it. You know, it buys you into the game, but then once you're in the game, a lot of it's on you, dog. So um, let me give you the final number here that Tom Steyer, Steyer, Sawyer, wasted. million. A quarter of a billion dollars wasted on his midlife crisis vanity project. Imagine if all that money went to putting a roof over the heads of homeless people. All of it. Imagine if all that, how many people could you help massively if you did that? God, it's just, it hurts. It hurts thinking about that. He just throws all that money around, lights it on fire. It could have gone to so many better things. Uh, and Tom, like, his candidacy was always a little silly. I mean, let's keep it real. What he did is he tried to lead this impeach Trump movement from very early on, and he would collect everybody's information, collect their data, collect their email addresses and stuff like that, And then when he amassed this giant list, what did he do? He turned around and used it for his presidential campaign. So he basically committed fraud to get everybody's information and then turned around and used that information in a way that he wasn't originally supposed to use it for. And that alone, that fraud really drove me crazy and pissed me off. And um, it really, you know, it really showed me that this guy has no true character. It really is just an ego trip. And all those times, like, every now and then he pretended to cuddle up to Bernie and get close to Bernie and be like, yeah, I'm more with this guy. And uh, then he ran an ad in South Carolina bashing Bernie, saying how Medicare for all is bad. So all of it was fake. It was all astroturf. It was all an ego trip. And uh, I'm happy he's gone. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back. Um, Bernie Sanders stands up for himself. You're not going to want to miss that and much, much more there, right there, guys. bit of backbone here, and says the knee bone connected to the hip bone, hip bone connected to the backbone, you a bitch, and I'm going to fight you. Okay, uh, wait, I lost my place. Where the hell is the story? Here it is. <clears throat> Bernie Sanders is making it quite clear that he will not concede if he wins a plurality of the vote. So here he is talking about this on ABC.
3: junior supporters have said the candidate with the most pledged delegates going to the convention should be the nominee. That's a pretty clear contrast with the position you took four years ago. Here you are in May 2016.
4: I hope that we will win the pledged delegates, but at the end of the day, the. Party. And if those superdelegates conclude uh, that Bernie Sanders is the best candidate, the strongest candidate to defeat Trump and anybody else, yes, I would very much welcome uh, their support.
0: If that argument was correct then, why isn't it correct now?
4: George, that was in May. California, the last primary was in June. And what I said is, at that point, if I can great, create momentum and if we win the California primary, then I think superdelegates might want to rethink where we're at. That was before the end of the process. What you're asking me now is if at the end of the entire democratic process, a candidate, maybe Bernie Sanders, ends up with more votes than anybody else, and we go into the convention and the democratic establishment and the superdelegates say, hey, yeah, Bernie won more votes than anybody else. He won state after state
0: after state, but we don't want him. Do you know what that will do to the democratic base in this country? But, but, say, what? but Senator, but Senator on, several occasions, occasions. on several occasions back in 2016, you you refused to say
3: you you refused to say that you refused to say that whoever had the pledged delegate lead should be the nominee.
4: No, George, I think you're missing the point here. What I that was before California. After California, after Hillary Clinton won the pledged delegates. I did not go to any superdelegate, it was over. We conceded the election and that we supported Hillary Clinton. So, you know, that is my point. I'm not being uh, inconsistent with what I said in 2016, but I want you to think about it for a moment. If we go into Milwaukee, into the Democratic Convention with a lead, having won many, many states, having won the people's vote, and that is reversed at the convention, how do you think people all over this country are gonna feel? Do you think really that will give us the unity? You talked about unity. We need unity. If you reject the candidate who has the most votes from the people and you win it through superdelegates and the Democratic establishment and the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, do you think you're going to have the energy and the excitement of the grassroots movement to defeat Donald Trump? I honestly don't think you will.
1: Yeah, and uh, here's another point that should be brought up that Bernie's too nice to bring up. They rigged it against him. (laughs) Like... The idea that they're gonna they're gonna go after Bernie and be like, no, oh, well, you didn't accept the vote last time. They rigged it from day one. That's not me speaking. That's the leaks from WikiLeaks, where it's them saying it. So just so you know, it's not a question. We know that Hillary's campaign was married to the DNC. There was no difference. They were one and the same. Hillary's team got the last word on press releases from the DNC. Everything behind the scenes was backing her up and rigging it against her opponents. We learned Donna Brazil famously told us that she, Hillary would get the debate questions before the debate. When they did the fundraising, um, Hillary did these fundraisers where she was acting like, oh, I'm fundraising for down-ballot races, but all that money would come to her. They rigged it against them. They rigged it. And now they have the nerve to be like, why didn't you just let them rig it against you, Bernie? Because rigging is wrong. (laughs) Rigging is wrong. Rigging is bad. But okay, digress from that point. Put that point aside for a second. Put it aside. Because honestly, we don't even need that point. Because here's the reality. As I've told you guys before, one of the main reasons that Bernie Sanders stayed in until the end to see what would happen is uh, Hillary Clinton was being investigated by the FBI. And she could have been indicted. And if you're indicted and you're up on federal charges, you could face jail time. So in a situation like that, don't you want an insurance plan? Don't you want a fallback plan? Or it's like, okay, well, what do we do now? What are you going to have somebody who's indicted uh, go up against Donald Trump? So it was kind of like an insurance option. And like Bernie was alluding to there, I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say if Bernie won California and he won about 65% of the vote, he could have won. He could have won. Now, to be clear, the polls were not reflecting that that's how California was going to go, and that is not how California went. California went quite the opposite. Hillary won in a relatively solid landslide victory. But the day before the California election, um, you know, Hillary's team also did some sketchy stuff. But either way, he still had a chance going into California, even though it was a super long shot. So he wanted to stay in to see what happens in California. He also wanted to stay in because Hillary could have been indicted. Um, And also, one of the most important points is, guys, in 2016, and this is what led to a lot of the reform that happened, they would count the superdelegates before any votes were cast. So in other words, there were multiple states where Bernie Sanders won and he lost in the delegate count. Let me repeat that. There were multiple states in 2016 where Bernie Sanders won sizable victories, too, 55%, 60% of the vote, but he lost. Because the superdelegates already committed to Hillary before the voting happened. So for him to say, hey, man, maybe we should correct the record on those things, that's not an attempt to steal an election. That's not an attempt to be undemocratic. And like he pointed out, at the end of it all, even though it was rigged against him, I think it was before we knew it was rigged against him, he was like, okay, you know, hey, you got more votes, you're nomination. So they try, listen, they're trying to do the old, like, hypocrisy burn in order to say, like, "Uh uh-huh, so now we should be able to steal it from you. But the reality of the situation is it was stolen, it was rigged in 2016 from the jump, and this time we're not taking any nonsense. And Bernie's crystal clear now. He's not taking any nonsense. If Bernie Sanders wins a plurality, he will not go silently into the night like they want him to do. If Bernie wins a plurality and they steal it from him and they try to shove somebody else down our throats, first of all, Milwaukee will burn. That's what's going to happen. Now, I believe in peaceful protest. I believe in nonviolent resistance. But you think you could just override the will of the voters and then they don't do anything in response that could be violent? Who are you kidding, bro? But Bernie Sanders himself is saying, no, if I win a plurality, I will fight to get the nomination. And if you think you could, you know, push him into a corner and say, no, we're picking this person who has fewer votes. And then Bernie will come out there all silently and be like, I'm now endorsing this person who just stole it from me. He's not going to do that. And he's right to not do that. So uh, be prepared because we need him to win a majority so we avoid the worst case scenario of this broker convention. Because they will never be fair to him. They will never tell you all the facts. They will never, you know, be upfront and honest. And that's obvious. Okay, next. So here's some news that should absolutely terrify you. The Iowa caucuses were a complete disaster. They were a mess. And um, it's a great example of either sheer incompetence or complete corruption and shadiness. Um, I think both are probably true, but there's definitely a hefty amount of corruption and shadiness. Uh, that cannot be denied. So, given all that, we now have some more news. Look at what happened. This is from the reporter who's been following this very closely. His name is Taniel. I believe he works for the publication of The Appeal. And he says, it's done. 22 members of the IDP's, uh, that's Iowa Democratic Party's State Central Committee, just voted to certify the IDP's incorrect results despite a missing precinct Plus all the other errors, 13 voted against, that's 22 people telling more than 100 voters it's fine to ignore them entirely. Not only are they missing a precinct, there are also other mistakes that they haven't fixed. And get this, you ready for this? There are new mistakes in the recount. And not only, it's not like, oh, generally speaking, there are mistakes, but we don't know where they are. No, we know exactly where they are. We know exactly what the mistakes are. We know exactly how to fix it, and they're not doing it. And they just voted, no, certify these. Good enough, good enough, good enough, good enough. Really? There's a famous old joke, I think it was from Chris Rock. He's like, is that, is that how it works at the bank? Oh, you know, you, you tried to take out a $1,000 from the bank. Well, here, here's about 1000 if it's like a little extra, maybe $1,020, close enough, go ahead. They never do that. But for democracy, you've got to go, eh, good enough, good enough, good enough. Now, uh, if you're not pissed enough already, the Iowa Democrats said the following. This is somebody who voted on this. Somebody who voted on this and said, yeah, yeah, yeah certify them, even though they're, we know there are outstanding mistakes. One of them said, quote, we don't have time to correct every error. Let's be clear. This is election fraud. They're committing election fraud right in front of our faces. Right in front of our faces. That's what this is. They're committing election fraud right in front of our faces. Now, Mayor Pete has already dropped out, but the question in Iowa is, is it Mayor Pete's or is it Bernie's? That's the question. And um Methinks if they counted every vote and if they allocated the state delegate elects properly, Bernie Sanders would win, but they just don't want that to happen. So here we go again. I told you guys from the beginning, we have to overwin in order to win. And this is yet another example. The Iowa Democratic Party is committing fraud out in the open. Out in the open. I hope they lose their position as the first state uh, to vote. And I hope that the U.N. sends in election monitors. And I hope the Iowa Democratic Party is never in charge of counting votes ever again. But I also don't want the DNC to do it. I want some independent party to do it. Because I don't trust them at all. Okay, now we go to Ro Khanna. Ro Khanna spoke about the coronavirus while on the campaign trail for Bernie Sanders and he made a really good point. Let's take a look at that.
2: One way you can't take politics out of this is that I think Americans are now going to be looking at these Democratic candidates, many of them in a different way. Who could lead in a situation like this? Who is the person who can take us out of a crisis? What is it about Bernie Sanders that you would make the argument for? Because a lot of people are now taking a look at Bernie Sanders, particularly in this state, and saying, you know, he's the guy who has experience, he's the guy who was around for Ebola. Absolutely, and he's the person
0: who has identified the weaknesses in the healthcare system. I mean, think about it, we're only as safe as the least insured and sickest person. What would Medicare for All do? It would ensure that people actually could get a test for coronavirus, that they could get treatment. For the coronavirus so i think this whole pandemic has shown the importance of having everyone covered and everyone having access to care you don't want people saying i don't want to get tested or get treated because i worry about the three thousand dollar bill because of my deductible
1: so that's an amazing point i love that point it's spot on and um you know it's an interesting thing i think Hassan piker uh, tweeted this as well and it didn't occur to me until I heard Rokana and I heard Hassan Piker say it. Um, you really have a contrast here between the different philosophies, okay? What's the response from the Trump administration? Well, they say, shut the border. That's it. Shut the border. That's our response to the coronavirus, and that's the end of it. Now, that's a little silly, particularly because the coronavirus is not coming in from the southern border. <laughs> not coming in from there at all you could say hey you got to monitor people at the airport that's something i would agree with you know in a lot of places now you're you're doing a containment strategy where like you know people get their temperature taken as they're coming off the planes from certain places because there's outbreaks in south korea and italy and areas of china and whatnot so i agree monitor the people coming off the planes and everything but the idea oh shut down the border no that that's trying to square peg round hole the situation by saying like even though this won't fix the problem, I want to do it anyway, so I'm just going to say it would help fix the problem. See what I'm saying? So that's the Trump administration response. That's what a lot of conservatives are saying. And what's uh, Ro Khanna saying? Ro is like, hey, Medicare for all seems pretty important because – and there was a story that came out recently. One guy went – I think he was in Florida. He went to go check if he had the coronavirus, and he got a, over a $3,000 medical bill. A lot of people can't afford that, so guess what? You're disincentivizing people from going to check if they have the disease. And that makes it more dangerous for all of us. The other thing, paid time off. Paid time off would make it so that if people think there's even a little question, hey, maybe I have this, oh, they'll stay home. They'll stay home. They'll be like, oh, God, I don't want to maybe get anybody else sick. I have the paid sick days. I might as well use them now. There's no better time to use it. So really... The right-wing response of shut the border, that makes no sense and it wouldn't address the situation. The left-wing response of if we had Medicare for all and paid time off, we'd all be a lot safer right now. That is no doubt true. That's absolutely true. And now a lot of people are making that point, and I'm happy that they're making that point. And could um, both agree is the basic safety procedures at airports and the like where you do, you know, uh, quarantine people is necessary, but contain them, check temperatures, so on and so forth. I think that's all necessary. That's stuff we all agree on. But what's very disheartening is the fact that, you know, uh, Trump released a lot of the people who were um, the pandemic specialists that we had in the government. Cut funding for the CDC and HHS. And, like, this is one of those instances where you actually do want people who believe in expertise, believe in, you know, science. And he put Mike, uh, Mike Pence in charge of the coronavirus. Mike Pence doesn't believe in evolution. Mike Pence thinks climate change is a hoax. You know, uh, Mike Pence famously argued that cigarettes don't cause cancer, so he's just not good for you know, such a position. So you do see this seriousness gap among the candidates here. And um, I think Bernie's Medicare for All proposal, Bernie's paid time off proposal, that's what we need in a time of crisis like we have right now. Because the fact that medical care is so expensive, the fact that people don't have paid time off by law, that makes us all a hell of a lot less safe.
2: Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg. Now
1: we're going to make fun of him again because that's what this show is becoming in the long term. Make fun of Michael Bloomberg's show. So, um, nobody likes Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> What's the. Uh, I want to be like Mike or I like Mike. I forget what it was. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan, his. The prime of his career was when I was a little bit too young. Um, I was born in 88, so you know I was too young for most of his dominance, and I didn't really get to experience it. But there was some sort of ad campaign like, I want to be like Mike, or I like Mike, or whatever it was. Anyway, this is the opposite of that. <laughs> Nobody likes Mike. <laughs> Everybody loves Raymond. Everybody hates Mike Bloomberg. So um, he bought his way to this point in the election. That's obvious. You know, $300,000 donation to the DNC to change the debate rules to get him on stage. They made it so, oh, you don't need small individual donors anymore. Used to be like over $200,000 you needed. Now you don't need any. Got him on the debate stage. He gave $800,000 to the Democratic Grassroots Victory Fund, which is the state Democratic parties. Just he's just throwing money at him. He's making it rain on the Democratic elites, and he's like, help me, help me. So what do they do? They do help him, and. On some level, Mike Bloomberg knows this, that nobody likes him and that he's bought his way to this point because he keeps having to use these little tricks to try to dupe people. So the one he did recently is he bought three minutes of primetime airtime on CBS and all the major stations to do an address about the coronavirus. By the way, I'm not kidding about this. He had like the American flag behind him. It almost looked like he was in the White House, like he was trying to be like. I'm so presidential. I'm Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah, shut the fuck up. Nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody cares. He's trying to, he's like, he's buying the ability to play pretend being president. That's what he did. So there's another dirty, dirty trick that he's using in an attempt to gain support. He's running ads where he pretends that this guy has endorsed him.
0: I took office. I moved rapidly
1: to revive the U.S. economy. Our recovery started under Obama. Trump's real economic record, and it's showing his numbers compared to Obama. Obama's job uh, creation is higher. Debt rose. Wage growth stalled. Defend President Obama's successes and expose Trump's lies and failures. That's what it says on screen. Text Mike to 80510. Mike will get it done.
0: Mayor, leadership that makes a difference. He's been a leader throughout the country for the past 12 years. Mr. Michael Bloomberg
3: is here. Together, they work to combat gun violence and again to improve education for every child.
4: I want to thank the mayor of this great city, Mayor Bloomberg, for his extraordinary leadership. I share your determination to bring this country together to finally make progress for the American people. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message.
1: If you don't follow politics closely and you watch that ad, what do you walk away thinking? You think Obama endorsed him, right? That's the response from a lot of people. So there's a new poll that just came out. 26% of Democrats now think Obama endorsed Bloomberg. The story keeps getting worse and worse. He's trying to run on, like, oh, I'm the continuation of Obama's legacy. That's what he's trying to run on. Michael Bloomberg did not endorse Obama in 2008, even though he's running around saying that he did. He didn't endorse him in 2008. And while he did endorse him in 2012, he did it like right before the election, like right before it. So it wasn't clear that he was like, you know, he actually was in agreement with his policies and what he was doing. And listen, man, we've gone over his record a thousand times before, but Michael Bloomberg is a guy who blocked a minimum wage increase as mayor of new york city right off the bat to me that's unforgivable people are struggling out there living paycheck to paycheck minimum wage is way too low especially in the city and he blocked a minimum wage increase obama for all of his flaws one of the things that he did is for either government officials or no maybe have been paid contractors with the federal government he made it so they he increased the minimum wage for them that's a good thing listen i'm fair there are many areas where I think Obama did not do a good job and did a very bad job, but other things I give him credit for. You know, I give him credit for the Iran nuclear agreement. I give him credit for normalizing relations with Cuba. That was definitely a giant step in the, dire- in the right direction. Freeing nonviolent drug offenders was a good thing that he did in his second term. I wish he did more, but he did some of that. Uh, again, raising the minimum wage for federal contractors. So this is not, my point is, even as corporate and centrist as Obama is, Obama is significantly to the left of Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg! made a big deal about endorsing. He spoke at the RNC in 2004 in support of George W. Bush. After four years of Bush, torture, illegal wars, all that stuff, he's like, yeah, I like that, and he endorsed that guy. He's an authoritarian elitist. This is a guy who banned big gulps. This is a guy who banned smoking on public beaches when you're on a giant ashtray outside. A guy who says... Um, you know, bagel stores in New York City used to feed the homeless with the leftover bagels at the end of the day. He banned that. This is who we're talking about, man. He's said legalized weed is the stupidest thing anybody's ever done. He compared free health care and education to a free pony. He's not. He's a Republican. He's a right winger. Even in a way that Obama, who's a neoliberal corporate centrist, Obama is significantly to the left of Mike Bloomberg. But now Bloomberg is running like he's the continuation of Obama's legacy. If I'm Obama, I'm pissed over this. But now here's the thing. Obama has, he did come out and say, hey, stop running this misleading ad that includes me in it. But I think it was, that comment was directed at a misleading Trump ad in some southern states. To my knowledge, and maybe I'm wrong about this, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong about this in the comment section, but I haven't seen him say anything about the Bloomberg ads. I haven't seen him say, hey, 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 what are you doing here? Don't, like, misuse my legacy. So, I mean, that makes me think maybe he blessed it behind the scenes. And maybe he said, go ahead, I'm not going to endorse you, but if you want to like, basically pretend like I endorse you, fine, go right ahead and do it. I'm not kidding about this. I actually think this is disrespectful to Joe Biden. <laughs> I actually believe that. Because in the case of Joe Biden, for all of his flaws and his melting brain and all that stuff, his, him, he, ideologically Biden is a lot closer to, to Obama than Mike Bloomberg is. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Damn it, man. Jesus Christ. But this, is, but this is what you have to do when you're an authoritarian, elitist, billionaire oligarch. He can't run on anything substantive. So what does he do? I don't know. I'll buy three minutes in prime time to make you think I'm the president fighting the coronavirus. I don't know. I'll run ads with the last Democratic president pretending like I was for him all along, and he's for me. And so duped 26% of Democrats into thinking that Obama endorsed him. The good news is that even though Obama's approval rating is super high— even though Obama's approval rating is about 60%, which is, again, high for an ex-president at this point in their retirement. I really don't think that his endorsement would even carry as much weight as a lot of people think it would. I really don't think so. Um, But it's still just a gross, gross trick for Mike Bloomberg, and I do not like it. And um, It's all he's got, man. All he's got is these weaselly little dirty tricks. Okay, next. So Glenn Beck is back to his old charlatan con man ways. He actually probably never stopped doing those things, but I just haven't been paying attention. Uh, He gave a speech at CPAC where he cranked up the dangerous hyperbole.
2: You can tell by the people he surrounds himself with. Have you looked at that? The self-proclaimed communists, the founders and leaders of Antifa, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the new SDS, the modern versions of the Weather Underground Terrorist Organization are all on his campaign staff. These are not grassroots groups of Democrats. They are Marxist revolutionaries who believe in nothing short of the complete overthrow of the United States and destruction of the Constitution and the free market system. And please, let us stop calling them Bernie Bros, because they are not my brother. They are not something that is funny. They are Bernie Bolsheviks. They are Bernie Brown shirts. That's what they are. And their revolution will result in death and misery another Holodomor, or another holocaust, or whatever we call the next great socialist atrocity.
1: It's really sad to watch stuff like that. It really is. Um, And not even necessarily because this rhetoric hurts us, Um, but because it's so stupid that it immediately exposes them as complete fools. Anybody who would use this rhetoric, anybody who would talk about Bernie Sanders and his movement in this way, they're just idiotic, idiotic fear mongers who have, there's not a single substantive critique that Glenn Beck has that he could make against Bernie Sanders and his movement. So he goes totally hyperbolic, he goes over the top, he goes obnoxious, And honestly, this convinces nobody. Don't take it from me. Go listen to uh, the conservative, populist conservative host, Sager on uh, Rising, on Hill TV. And he makes this case all the time. He's like, listen, if it's Bernie versus Trump, and the Trump people go all in on like, oh, my God, communism. Oh, my God. What about like Venezuela? Oh, my God. They're kind of like Nazis. Like you're going to get your clock cleaned, man. Because what he's doing is he, he's preaching inside his own little tight-knit circle, his own little bubble. And even many of the people in his own little bubble are going to go, mm, you're going a little too far there. But this appeals to nobody outside of that bubble. And everybody looks at it and says, really? The, first, uh, per- the person who might be the first Jewish president of the United States, really? He's going to do another Holocaust? He's like the Nazis? And I've pointed this out before, and it drives me crazy every time. But notice, they always contradict themselves in their, when they're slinging mud and smearing Bernie and his movement. They're Marxists, they're communists, and they're kind of like Nazis. Okay, but wait. You do know the communists fought the Nazis, right? <laughs> you do know that there's a total contradiction in those in those world views. You can't be both. It's not a thing. That's not a thing. That doesn't exist. That's like saying I'm a Laker Nick. I'm both the Lakers and the Knicks. <laughs> what? you got to pick one. You can't have both. It's just... He, He's a moron. He doesn't know anything about political science. He doesn't know anything about the definitions. He doesn't know anything about what Bernie actually stands for, or, or he does, and he's just smearing him anyway. But go listen to any Bernie Sanders speech, and then go listen to Glenn Beck's categorization of Bernie Sanders about how he's going to do another Holocaust, and he's a Bolshevik and a brown shirt, and his followers are terrorists, and they're like Marxists, communists, whatever. Go compare the two. Because every Bernie speech is like, I want to give people health care, and I want to give people education, and I want to make sure everybody has a nice life and decent wages. And um, I also want to increase personal freedom, and I want to make sure that people can smoke marijuana and not go to prison as a result of it. And this idea that, like, they're, they're going to be violent, and they're going to crack down on everybody who disagrees with them and maybe kill them. Bernie Sanders, uh, when there was a, a riot against Ann Coulter speaking at Berkeley— Bernie Sanders came out and said, no, we should let her speak. You want to know why? Because we believe in free speech in this country. We believe in free speech. So this guy who stood up for the rights of right-wingers to speak when it's unpopular, this is a guy who's going to kill people who don't agree with him? I'm sorry, man. It's just, like, it is embarrassing. Listening to Glenn Beck is embarrassing. And But just so you know, like, because a lot of centrists will hear this and say, this is why we can't run Bernie. He said the same thing about Obama. <laughs> Obama, who's a
2: neoliberal corporate centrist. He was out there calling him a Marxist. He said, well, the a government takeover of everything. Meanwhile, most of Obama's job growth was in the private sector
1: as president. So there's never any connection to reality. If you're somebody who's listened to Glenn Beck, you have to understand. He has no idea what the hell he's talking about. It's all performance art. It's all over the top. It's all disconnected from reality and, and just trying to you know, whip people up into a frenzy. But again, I don't think it'll work. Sagar, the populist conservative, says this is not going to work because um, your attacks have to have a kernel of truth in them. And everything he's saying here is no kernel of truth at all. There's not a single person who is in Bernie's campaign, who's part of that movement, who believes in violence. They just don't. They believe in nonviolent peaceful resistance, and they believe in trying to make us a thriving social democracy. He's an FDR-style New Deal Democrat. That's it. It's the continuation of a legacy that was so popular that he got elected four times, FDR did. And maybe that's why they're melting down. It's certainly possible that a guy like Glenn Beck knows that this can sell, and so he's immediately pressing the panic button and going over the top and going wild with it. But again, I don't think that this rhetoric... Really works, and I don't think that it. Um, I don't think it expands the conservative circle. I think if anything, it makes people go, "What the hell is he talking about?" And then they go take a look at why there's such vicious smears against the one candidate who really wants to help improve your life and improve the lives of all Americans. So the Trump administration's reaction to the coronavirus is so stupid that it's scary so take a look at this washington post originally reported it trump administration officials are holding preliminary conversations about economic responses to the coronavirus as the stock market fell sharply again on friday and amid international fears about the outbreak according to five people with knowledge of the planning among the options being considered are pursuing a targeted tax cut package these people said they have also discussed whether the white house should lean even harder on the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates, though the central bank on Friday afternoon said it would step in if necessary. No decisions at the White House have been reached on these options, and official stress conversations remain preliminary and extremely fluid. Vice President Mike Pence's office is involved in the discussion of possible responses, two people said. Okay, there's so much to to discuss about this. First of all, why are you not focused on... HHS and the CDC and having pandemic experts, and why are you not focused on the public health aspect of this? That's point number one. If if the concern is, oh my God, the coronavirus, the coronavirus, the coronavirus, it should be discussed from the perspective of how do we make sure everybody's healthy and safe? How do we make sure we defeat this? But that's not the panic conversation. The panic conversation is, oh my God, what about the stocks? Will somebody think of the stock market, please? what about the stocks? That's the panic conversation. That's the panic conversation. Now, you know because you watch this show, but many people don't know, the stock market is not a reflection of how your average American is doing. The stock market is a, is a reflection of how the wealthy are doing and how the corporations are doing. About half the country, probably more, do not own stocks. So the fact that this is the response, oh my God, we got to do something about the stock market, that alone should terrify you because it shows their priorities are abysmal and really really dumb but furthermore even so even if you say okay let's focus on the economic aspect for a second what was the answer they say we got to do tax cuts is there anything in the world that their response is not let's do tax cuts is there anything in the world and for the record they're not talking about you they're not talking about working class people. They're talking about corporations and the rich. And they're talking about leaning on the central bank to try to cut interest rates. That's all you got? That's your response? And Trump's out there today talking about, you know, potential quantitative easing, which is subsidies, bailouts, going to the financial institutions yet again. This is, this is what you got. This is your reaction. Oh my God, a crisis. Let's cut some billionaires' taxes a little bit more. You guys down? You guys down? This is like Naomi Klein, the shock doctrine. It's like, take uh, take a crisis and use it to do your pre-existing agenda. And the pre-existing agenda is serve the rich and the powerful. But I think, and this is another important point, I think it's because they also were dumb enough to believe that that might help. <laughs> like, that's the point I'm at with Trump and Pence, is not only are they doing it, To carry out the agenda that they were going to do anyway but they're also doing it because they think it might actually change stuff and help in reality you're not doing anything guys it is it is possible it is possible that the coronavirus was the pin that popped the economic bubble that we're in it's possible now it's also possible it's not and it's still going to be a little while before we have the big crash but it's possible we're at the beginning of the big crash And, you know, they're going to try to blame it all on the coronavirus when that was just the catalyst that popped the bubble. In real life, the fundamentals of the economy are totally broken. There are no fundamentals there. Wages are still stagnant, despite what Trump says, where he tries to pretend like everybody's doing so great, everything's going so wonderful. No. Wages are still stagnant. Corporate profits are through the roof. Stock buybacks make it look like the economy is doing much better than it is. The stock market's doing much better than it is. Um, You guys know we're loaded up to our eyeballs with, Um, student loan debt with uh, medical debt, credit card debt. We reinflated the housing bubble, which at some point is going to burst. We have a multi-trillion dollar unregulated derivatives market. We deregulated Wall Street further. Glass-Steagall is still not back in place, so the basic protections and regulations against another crash are gone. And what we've seen to this point from uh, the Obama response, the bailout of the banks, for example, the stimulus was okay, the saving of GM was okay, but the bailout of the banks, you just saw a reinflation of the bubble and you just saw a situation that we're in now which is a lot like the roaring 20s where what did Trump do? Came in and cut taxes for the rich and corporations even more. So we're in that giant bubble and this may have been the popping of the bubble and they're totally unprepared to deal with it because all they have is, I don't know, cut taxes some more? That should terrify you. That should terrify you because I guarantee you the idiots who are in charge When the sky starts falling, the idiots who are in charge know less about the economy and how to fix it than you do. And you're probably going, I don't know that much, but you know more than them, which is really, 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 really terrifying. Um, So, uh, wonderful. We have a president, we have an administration that cut funding for the CDC and HHS, fired a bunch of pandemic experts, have no idea how to address this from a public health perspective. And then also their emergency response is, geared towards the economy, and they're like, more tax cuts. That'll fix everything. No, it won't. No, it won't. All right, next. We have an interesting new YouGov poll that just came out. Uh, this is going to shock probably a lot of you, um, This is for the Democratic primary specifically, Democratic primary polling. Those who say they have a positive view of socialism, 56%, capitalism, 37%. And that's in Texas. In California, socialism, 57%, capitalism, 45%. Bernie Sanders has changed the game. And I'm putting this right at his feet. This is him. He has done this. He has done this because he's the one who led the charge. He's he's led the charge. And by the way, just so everybody knows, I have consistently opposed him describing himself as a democratic socialist because he's not a democratic socialist. (laughs) He's just a social democrat. Democratic socialist entails more democratization of the economy than Bernie actually calls for. Bernie's policies, Bernie's plans are really just a continuation of FDR's New Deal, and it's just social democracy. Social democracy is the last train stop on the capitalist line, whereas democratic socialist is a post-capitalist philosophy. Um, Now, it is possible that he actually believes in democratic socialism, but he understands that maybe that's To go all the way to that up front might be a little too much of a reach. So he calls himself a democratic socialist and then he proposes social democracy. That's possible. But honestly, my guess is he thinks he's a democratic socialist, even though the textbook definition of what he is is a social democrat. But either way, he has changed the game. And honestly, I think this is a positive thing because you don't want a country where I am the left fringe in the national discourse. You don't want that country because, you know, we're never going to get everything I want. And there is always a tug of war with the right. And you're probably going to get the midpoint between the left and the right. So you do want people who are to my left in the national conversation to almost drag the spectrum to a place where my ideas and Bernie's ideas seem like the centrist, moderate ideas. You want to know why? Because they are. You know, you guys know I refer to myself as a a social democrat or a libertarian leftist or a populist left um, person. But really, I'm internationally super moderate because all the things I'm calling for exist in almost all the other developed countries, whether it's universal health care, free college, paid time off, things of that nature, higher wages, unionization. These are all very basic, easy, straightforward fixes to, you know, a winner-take-all cutthroat economy, and um, Bernie has changed the debate, changed the paradigm, shifted the spectrum, and there's no going back, which should make you happy. It should make you happy that this is what's happening. This is the debate that's now ongoing, and a lot of people will fearmonger and act like, oh my God, no, this is going to hurt the Democrats in the long run. No, we're trying to save the Democratic Party, because The moderate approach, the neoliberal corporate centrist approach, has been an abysmal failure. It has led to the rise of characters like Trump. Because he comes in and he gets to pretend to be more populist than the Hillary Clintons of the world, and it works. So, really, this is a movement to have a populist left in this country. And uh, the fact that now people, Democratic voters, are viewing socialism as more positive than capitalism... I mean, that's a good thing, man. And also, remember, a lot of these voters are young. A lot of these voters were not indoctrinated with the anti-Soviet Union, anti-communist propaganda. So they don't think that, you know, oh, if we have a socialist economy, that all of a sudden you're on a slippery slope to some sort of authoritarian communism. They don't buy that. Older voters who have been indoctrinated to a large extent on that stuff, more of them buy it. The Younger voters don't buy that. And remember, a lot of these younger voters, myself included, we came of age at a time when um, the world's crumbling around us, and who do we blame? Well, let's see. We had massive deregulation, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. So that's unfettered free market capitalism, which led to that. And we have endless wars happening, illegal wars. Who do I blame for that? Neocon war hawks. So unfettered capitalism and warmongers, these are the things that have really ruined our future along with environmental degradation, which goes hand in hand with capitalism. Now, I would make a slight distinction, and I would argue that corporatism is the real culprit here, because corporatism includes socialism for the rich, socialism for the corporations, looting the treasury to help the powers that be that are already the elites. So I think there's a little bit of a distinction there. But still, the bottom line is, leftism is not to blame in fact the places that had more regulation in place of the market economy largely weathered the subprime mortgage crisis and the great recession it wasn't as bad in canada because they had regulations that were on the books that were reasonable regulations so you know we all came of age a lot of us came of age at a time when it was unfettered capitalism and endless war um that led to all the problems that we have or many of the problems that we had and have so you're not gonna it doesn't matter how much you try to you know Force us to believe and indoctrinate people and and propagandize and say, like, no, 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 that's not true. Leftism is the only bad thing in the world. It's not going to work. So, um, listen, I think this is a welcome shift. When we get to a point where there are many people in the public discourse who are to the left of me, yes, I will openly argue with them and say where I think they're wrong and why I think a more moderate position is correct. But the fact that the spectrum is now moving in that direction is only positive. And I'm happy that there are people to my left who could help drag the debate and drag the Overton window because it needs to be dragged. let's keep going, baby. So Tulsi Gabbard wrote an article in defense of Bernie Sanders. And it's interesting. It's interesting that she kind of leaned in uh, with this criticism. So she took on U.S. intelligence agencies. Here's the title of the piece. Tulsi Gabbard, presidential candidates must also condemn election interference by U.S. intelligence agencies. So she goes on to make the case that they're claiming, oh, Bernie Sanders is being helped by Russia, and they're presenting zero evidence to that effect. And the reason they're doing this is clear: they want to scare people away from voting for him, or worst-case scenario, even if he gets in power, make it so that he's permanently on an aggressive, uh, you know, he's permanently in an aggressive stance against Russia to continue what the deep state, what the intelligence agencies want, which is a perpetual Cold War-like situation. So that's the, the effect, that's the impact of what they're trying to do here. And Tulsi Gabbard is saying, no, I see what you're doing, and I want all the candidates to say, not only am I opposed to, you know, interference in the election by hostile foreign actors, I'm also against, you know, domestic spy agencies getting involved in the election and interfering. Because it does, they are trying to impact the election in a way that benefits them and in a way that suits their goals. So I think it's great that she said this. Um, you know, I hope the next article is we must condemn election interference by the DNC because that's really what's about to happen big time, in a, in, I think in an even stronger way than how the intelligence agencies are interfering. Because they're admitting it. They're all saying it now. Like, yeah, if Bernie wins more votes than everybody else, but he doesn't have a majority, we're going to take it. So, I mean, really stop and think about that, because these are the same people who were screaming about, the Russians are interfering
2: with democracy! Yeah!
1: They were screaming that, and then now they're turning around and going, oh, us? Oh, we don't believe in democracy. You were just saying the Russians were destroying our democracy, and we have to stop that, because democracy is wonderful and good and perfect. Yeah, but when we interfere with democracy, it's fine, because we're us. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So you don't have a principled belief in democracy. You just want to use that issue to fearmonger about the other. But when it suits your purposes, when the candidate you don't want is winning, you're like, oh well, we'll just overthrow it if he wins. So I'm listen. I have zero respect. For any of the people, if your position is overthrow the will of voters, I'm against you. Full stop. And you're crazy if you think I'll tell all of you right now. I don't care who you pick as the uh, you know a replacement for Bernie Sanders. If Bernie Sanders wins more votes than any other candidate and they take him out, I'm not voting for that person at all. No way. It's a matter of principle. You don't get to say I'm going to override. The will of the voters in the primary and then turn around and say okay now i need the voters you just told us our vote doesn't matter now you're going to turn around and say please give me your vote but you just said it doesn't matter you just said it doesn't matter and now you're saying oh no no now it matters oh only when you want it to matter it matters no not doing it not playing that game i will not vote for somebody who did not get more votes not happening not happening not happening happening. so tulsi's leaning into this criticism of the intelligence agencies i think that's a wonderful thing um However, I will say, she's still in the race, and I don't really understand why. Uh, Maybe she has some sort of angle that I don't understand yet, and you don't understand yet that she could explain, but I don't get it. I don't get it. It's not like she's getting over 15% in these contests so that she has delegates that she can then give to Bernie. She's not getting delegates. So I really don't understand what she's doing, but I think that she's ruining whatever future electoral chances she might have, and that's a real concern. You don't want to... And Mayor Pete, I think this is one of the reasons Mayor Pete dropped out like he did. You don't want to get obliterated going forward because then in the future, you look less serious. You look like there's no chance. And if she wants to run in the future, which she probably should do, um, then you don't want to have the rest of this on your record. So I don't know what she's doing. Maybe she's doing something I don't understand. Um, But she is coming out swinging for Bernie, and... This also might be, you know, might be like a little like, hey, hey, you over there, for, you know, Tulsi to be in Bernie's cabinet or potentially VP. Um, So I don't know. That's all yet to be seen. But she's one of the few who will continue to throw some haymakers for Bernie. Okay. Now. Let's go to, this will be the final story of the day, final story of the day, and it will be on Fareed Zakaria, who decided to go after Bernie Sanders with some really, really shitty arguments. So Fareed Zakaria is an interesting character. I think sometimes he makes pretty good points, and I think other times uh, he makes terrible points. Um, Well, here he is doing a segment on Bernie Sanders, and he's talking about, you know, how Bernie references Scandinavian social democracies, and he's going to try to pick apart that argument and go, aha, here's why that's a bad idea and why you shouldn't want a system like that. So let's watch, and then I'll explain the multiple reasons I think that this attack is pretty sloppy and also unfair. Let's watch.
3: I want to talk about Bernie Sanders, who is still, despite South Carolina, the odds-on favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Sanders says that his proposals are not radical at all, pointing again and again to countries in Northern Europe such as Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, as examples of the kind of economic system he wants to bring to America. But is he right about these countries? Take billionaires. Sanders has been very clear on the topic. Billionaires should not exist, he said. But Sweden and Norway both have more billionaires per capita than the United States. Moreover, inheritance taxes in Sweden and Norway are zero, and in Denmark, just 15%. America's estate tax is 40%. By the way, all the data I'm going to cite here comes from the Nonpartisan Tax Foundation, or the OECD. Sanders' vision of Scandinavian countries seems to be stuck in the 1960s and 70s, a period when those countries were indeed pioneers in creating a social market economy. In Sweden, government spending as a percentage of GDP doubled from the 1960s to the 1980s. But as the Swedish commentator Johan Norberg points out, This experiment in Sanders-style democratic socialism tanked the Swedish economy. Between 1970 and 1995, he notes, Sweden did not create a single net new job in the private sector. In 1991, a free market prime minister, Carl Bildt, initiated a series of reforms to kickstart the economy. By the mid-2000s, Sweden had cut the size of its government by a third and emerged from its long economic slump. Versions of this problem and these market reforms took place all over Northern Europe, creating what is now called the Flex Security Model, combining flexible labor markets with a strong and generous safety net. The first part of the model is key, ensuring employers have the flexibility to hire and fire workers easily without excessive regulation or litigation. In addition, these countries have to stay extremely open, erecting no barriers to free trade to gain access to markets abroad and keep their local companies competitive. Now, it's true, these countries have a very generous safety net, and in order to fund it, they have high taxes. What is often not pointed out, however, is that in order to raise enough revenue to pay for things like universal health care, these taxes fall disproportionately on the poor, middle, and upper middle class. Denmark has one of the highest top income tax rates in the OECD, 55.9%. But that rate is applied to anyone making 1.3 times the average national income. In the U.S., this would mean any income over $65,000 would be taxed at a rate of 55.9%. And the biggest hit to the poor and middle classes in Northern Europe comes because they, like everyone, pay a national sales tax of about 25 percent, much higher than the average U.S. sales tax of 7 percent. These countries raise more than 20 percent of their revenue this way, compared to only 8 percent of tax revenue in the U.S. One final statistic. A 2008 OECD report found that the top 10 percent in the United States pay 45 percent of all income taxes, while the top 10 percent in Denmark pay 26 percent. In Sweden, 27%. This basic point is worth underlining because the American left seems largely unaware of it, and it has only become more true over the last decade. The United States has a significantly more progressive tax code than Europe. In other words, bringing the economic system of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway to the United States would mean embracing more flexible labor markets, light regulations, and a deeper commitment to free trade. It would mean a much more generous set of social benefits to be paid for by taxes on the middle class and poor. If Bernie Sanders embraced all that, it would be radical indeed. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week.
1: Okay, so let's go through that because a lot of that is misleading. A lot of it is sloppy. A lot of it is like inferring that he believes certain things and the only way you can make it work is if you do X, Y, and Z. So let's go through it. Now, from the top, When he he's, his whole argument is basically, hey, Bernie Sanders says let's do a Scandinavian-style social democratic system, but here's the way those systems really work. So the implication there is he's inferring like, Oh, Bernie wants to do all these things, but does he know about this, 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 and this, which are not things he's advocated for? To which I respond, right, yeah, he hasn't advocated for a lot of those things that you're implying he has to advocate for, and he's not going to. So, guys, when Bernie says you know he wants to copy the Scandinavian social democracies, what does he mean by that? What he means is let's have universal health care, let's have free college, and let's have paid time off. Basically, that's what he's talking about. And you know, if you want to go even more broad and vague than that, he's just talking about, hey, those, com- those countries mix capitalism and socialism where there's a little bit more of the socialism aspect in their economy than we have. So we have, we have socialist institutions. We have the military, the fire department, the police department, the roads, the bridges. Like We have some degree of socialism, and they do too. But they are a little more on the spectrum, having more socialism, so it's mixed in a in a in a way where it's not dominated by the capitalism. So that's what he means when he talks about let's have these uh, let's have a Scandinavian social democratic system. Farid Zakari is taking, you know, Bernie's support of those systems far too literally. And okay, so that let's continue here. He says. Oh, Bernie's clear that he wants no billionaires, but in, uh, in those countries, they have more billionaires per capita or something to that effect. Bernie's rhetoric and Bernie's tweeting of, uh, you know, billionaires shouldn't exist. Just so everybody knows, regardless of what your position is on that, his tax plan, which is out, it's released, and you could read it, his tax plan does allow for billionaires to continue to exist, just so you know. There's a difference there between what he casually says in rhetoric and what he tweets, and what his actual proposed tax plan is. So his proposed tax plan, yes, it does raise a hell of a lot of money from billionaires, but it does not eliminate billionaires where there's a maximum cap of like 999 million dollars. So that's an example of Fareed being again far too literal and not, you know, really looking at Bernie's tax plan and going through it. Okay, so he's just wrong about that. This idea of like, you know, oh they. They allow billionaires, uh, and there are more of them per capita, so what's Bernie doing? Right, and Bernie, even though he's raising taxes on the billionaires, he's not eliminating billionaires, even though he tweets stuff like, there shouldn't be billionaires. There's a difference between saying there shouldn't be billionaires and my tax plan literally eliminates billionaires. He doesn't. His tax plan does not eliminate billionaires. He has a wealth tax. That's the most progressive wealth tax that's out there, but you will still have some billionaires out there. Um, Another argument that Fareed goes on to make is, hey— big government spending is really was the hallmark of social democratic systems. And that big government spending didn't necessarily work. There was no private uh, job creation. And so those systems were really stagnant and not competitive and were not good like Bernie's making them out to be. To which I respond to uh, Fareed Zakaria. But if you look at Bernie's plans, the goal is to not get rid of capitalism completely the goal is not to get rid of the private marketplace the goal is not to try to nationalize every industry or most industries the goal is to take the basics off of the table and still allow for a free market economy but a regulated free market economy where you could still have job creation so it's not like he's kind of straw manning bernie's beliefs as oh he just wants big government to control everything but that really is like a lazy right wing straw man of Bernie Sanders actual beliefs. And when you look at his plans, there's still plenty of of a market economy functioning in there, much to the dismay of people to the left of Bernie. But that's what his plans are. So you can't straw man it by acting like, well, when they had bigger government in the social democracies in the 60s and 70s, it didn't work out too well. OK. And that's not what he's calling for. Um, then he goes on to say, oh, one one of the hallmarks of this uh, of these kinds of systems, which makes it work, is there are no restrictions on free trade." There are a couple of responses to that. First of all, those countries are a hell of a lot more a hell of a lot smaller than the U.S. and they have fewer industries than the U.S. So uh, theoretically, yes, it would be harder for them to exist and and be as thriving without a degree of free trade. But beyond that, when Bernie talks against free trade, he's just talking about changing the terms of our trade agreements where they're no longer written by lobbyists and special interests and corporations for the benefit of the owner class and against the workers. Bernie's not anti-free trade, full stop. Bernie is for trade agreements that have working people at the table and environmentalists at the table. We could still trade internationally. We could still import and export stuff. That's all totally fine and dandy. Um, But you need to craft deals that are good for working people. And right now they're just crafted by the corporate overlords who are screwing the people and have bought the government and are massively corrupt. So again, not really, he's kind of implying that Bernie has a position that he doesn't have. Um, And then he talks about, well, you're going to need high taxes to fund the social safety net. Uh, And he goes on to say any income above $65,000 in the United States would have to be taxed at 55%. Okay, but Bernie Sanders, you keep saying, oh, it has to be this, it has to be that. No, Bernie has released his plans, and his plans are clear. He's not raising taxes on everybody who makes over $65,000 and taxing him at 55%. That's simply not true. He doesn't do that. How about you actually read his tax plan and then critique his actual tax plan? But he doesn't do that, because then he'd have to say, oh, this is a, lot, this is a much more progressive tax system, and this isn't a tax system that burdens the working class with taxes, with burdensome taxes. That's just not the case. Um, So, and let me give another example here. Bernie's Medicare for All bill, does that raise taxes on the working class? Yes, but they save money because he's eliminating the private tax that they currently pay. They pay a private tax, you pay a private tax to a for-profit health insurance company. That's what you do. So if I tell you right now, you're paying a $12,000 private tax to the for-profit health insurance companies. You're paying premiums, deductibles, co-pays, and all that stuff. I'm going to get rid of that $12,000 you have to pay every year, and now it's going to be $7,000 you pay every year in public taxes. So I'm raising your public taxes $7,000, but I'm eliminating the $12,000 in private taxes. Are you going to take that deal if everything's covered? Your answer is absolutely. So for him to, for him to... Phrase it as and frame it as, oh, Bernie's going to need to raise taxes on the working class in order to get these things done. That's not giving you the total picture. That's not giving you the total picture. And furthermore, you're ignoring the fact that there's plenty of areas where we could cut to have savings to fund the social programs. Cut the military industrial complex. Cut the bailouts to Wall Street and the quantitative easing that happens all the time. Cut the pork barrel spending, which goes to unnecessary nonsense. Cut the subsidies to big oil, which happen every single year, $4 billion every single year. If you can roll back the areas where we should roll back, you can absolutely afford to do the basic things. Did you know, guys, his free college bill, I believe it cost $60 billion. The increase in the military budget in one year under Trump was $80 billion. So for just the increase in the military budget that we had in one year, we could pay for free college for everybody in the country. This idea that it's like, well, you can't do it without raising taxes on working people. Look at his plans. He doesn't do that. And to the extent he does raise it anywhere, he offsets it elsewhere. It's about getting a government that works for you. And they keep strawmanning and they keep smearing and they keep insisting and implying he believes stuff that he doesn't believe. And it's just, I'm so tired having to go through it. I'm so tired. When he talks about let's have a social democratic system, he just means let's have universal health care, free college, paid time off, and a couple other basic things. That's all he's saying. But the free Zakari is straw many. I'm like, oh, you must want to raise taxes on everybody making $65,000 or more at 55%. Except he doesn't do that. Okay. Um, and then the final point I'll make is... Um, He says, well, listen, the top 10% in the United States, they pay 45% of the taxes. And the top 10% in some of the respective Scandinavian countries, they pay about 25% in the taxes. So he's saying, like, wow, look at that. We're already soaking the rich in the U.S., and they're not soaking the rich over there. That's the argument that he's trying to make. What does that leave out? I'll let you think about it for a second. What does that leave out? How much of the money... And the wealth, does that top 10% have in the U.S. versus in the Scandinavian social democracies? So he's leaving out the the entire picture by leaving out that fact. That's a lie by omission. In the United States, you have, you know, the wealthiest, not the wealthiest, but you have six people with more wealth than the bottom 45% of the country. Just the Walton family has more wealth than nearly half of the United States. Don't take my word for it. There's a, there's a, there's a, I forget the term for it. There's a fact, there's this measurement that they use called, I believe, the Gini coefficient or something like that. The Gini system, which measures the wealth and income inequality in various countries. We are off the charts. We're off the charts. We have way more income and wealth inequality than other developed countries. So he's trying to make the case that that's not true and that, oh, we already soak the rich, but they don't over there. That's just a bogus thing to imply. It's just, it's totally bogus. Um, There's plenty of wealth sitting at the top that can be taxed and redistributed to fix the system, and those people wouldn't even feel it. They wouldn't even feel it. And remember, a lot of Bernie's funding mechanisms for these various plans do come from redistributive taxes from the wealthy to the working class. Namely, here's one, the Wall Street transaction tax. That's how he funds his free college proposal, a Wall Street transaction tax. It's not going to hit the middle class. It's going to hit the people who have all the damn money. So that's what he's leaving out there, that the wealthy in the U.S. are way more wealthy than the wealthy in the social democracies. So even with them paying a higher tax rate, they still net have way more wealth left over. Because they made a hell of a lot more of it. So there is no meritocracy that we have in this country, and that's the point. And that's the point. Uh and Bernie wants to make it more of a meritocracy. Give people an equal opportunity. Give people the basics. Don't burden them. But effectively what Fried Zakaria's argument boils down to is hey man, candidate bernie sanders with his social democratic proposals maybe these proposals will actually really hurt the working class maybe it will actually raise their taxes a lot and it'll be worse for them which on its face is a preposterous idea okay we are done baby i love y'all i love y'all and i will talk to you soon everybody um Get out there and vote on Super Tuesday if you're in one of these states, and uh, you will be hearing a lot from me either on Twitter or maybe some breaking, breaking stories as we get the results that roll in. So anyway, I'll see you
2: on the next show. Love you all. Peace.